I'm Teller Emmer. The following sermon audio is from The Well, a ministry of the University Church of Christ in Malibu, California. Thanks for listening. Wonderful to be back with you on this, this beautiful, cool Thursday evening. It's starting to cool off, uh, which is which is wonderful. I actually work remotely on Thursdays, and in order to kind of have some space to be able to, to focus and get centered, as I think through what we're talking about at the well. And today I worked from home, and I, I've got a picture of my home um, that will go up right there. I live in a, a tiny house. It, it's 120 square feet, um, and, and I, I kind of take a little bit of, of selfish pride in showing it off, um, as, as does my wife. We love showing people and, and hosting people. Some of you have been over for dinner and things. Um, but what, why we're proud of it is because it represents a lot of hard work for us. Um, it was our project. We designed and built it from the ground up in the months leading up to our wedding, and then we moved in right after we got married, and now we're living there. Um, You can see down in the bottom left corner, the the bathroom is outdoors. Um, But we, in the early processes of thinking through the design, thinking through what we wanted in a house, what we didn't want in a house, we were having lots of conversations, and Shelby, my wife, is super flexible about pretty much everything but she had two strong requests and the first request was that it have lots of windows so we ended up with 120 square feet of floor space and 11 windows in the house so it's great there's lots of natural light it's wonderful it makes the house feel a little bit bigger than it really is the other request that she had was also a window but it was a little more specific she wanted a big skylight above the bed so that we could fall asleep looking at the stars every night oh yeah uh, you can see it in at that front front uh, picture window there. Um, but that was a bit of a project. And there's something you need to know about Shelby and I. We are not builders. We're not professionals. We're not contractors. We like to make things. We have some experience woodworking and, and doing projects and stuff, but not in construction, okay? Um, my skills do not lie in the area of construction. They lie in the area of problem solving, figuring things out, and most importantly, Googling. And that's how our house came to be. Before every step in the process, I would literally sit down and Google how to do it. Before we framed the house, I typed into Google, how to frame a house, and tried to go from there. Before we put on the siding, how to side a house. Before we insulated, how to insulate. And that is our method, and that's, that's how it came to be. So suffice it to say, when it t- came time to put in this skylight, I was only an expert in that I had read a few articles and seen a couple YouTube videos on how to put in a skylight. And it's a big skylight. It's about four feet by four feet. It weighs about 150 pounds. And so it took four of us wrestling it up between the two lofts that make up the second floor and out the the ceiling hole to rotate and set it down where it is today. And it's now that it's there, it was a bear to get up there, but now that it's there, it's wonderful. It lets in so much more light into the rest of the house that would otherwise just be blocked by the roof. We do get to fall asleep looking at the stars on clear nights, which is wonderful. We get to wake up 
looking at the tree branches swaying above the house, which makes us feel like we're in a little tree house. It's great. We love having the skylight there. However, it does have a bit of a drawback. Um, and it's a drawback I didn't realize the extent of until February 14th of this year. Now, it's Valentine's Day. And on Valentine's Day this year, I woke up. And, and I rolled over to, to cuddle with my wife and say, I love you, happy Valentine's Day. And as I rolled over toward her, I realized my plan was to you know, get a little mushy, but the mattress had beat me to the punch and was already real mushy. And what had happened was it had rained all night the night before, and whoever installed the skylight had done it in a way that allowed all that rain to come into the house and be dumped directly on the midline of our bed between the two of us. So instead of you know waking up slow, having this wonderful romantic like breakfast in bed and enjoying the beginning to our Valentine's Day, we laid there separate with a line of pots and pans and a walk going up the bed to catch all the rainwater that I had allowed into the house by installing it improperly which is something I need to get fixed before the winter comes because it's still in that position. <laughs> We're reading about a different skylight tonight. We're reading about a biblical skylight that, unlike the one in our house, wasn't intended by the person who built the house, but much like the one in our house, would be an absolute terrible thing to have in a rainstorm. So we find it in the book of Mark. It's chapter 2, the first 12 verses, and those go like this, feel free to read along. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your, sons, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, I don't know about you. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you might be starting to see some themes. We're looking at episodes in Jesus' life where he's interacting with broken people. And the characters in these stories are presenting some themes. For example, the, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, the teachers of the law, the religious elite tend to be pretty judge, judgmental, suspicious, questioning of Jesus and who he is and what his power really is. And far be it from me to be critical of somebody who Jesus applauded but it seems to me that the people who are coming to him to be saved have been very disrespectful and inconsiderate. Think about a couple weeks ago, we saw the story of a woman 
who showed up and crashed this dinner party and caused this huge scandalous scene and distracted everybody from the point of the evening, which was this conversation Jesus was having with the host, and instead had all eyes turned on her. Or last week, we had this bleeding, impure woman who shoved her way through the crowd to get to the holy man and made everybody impure kind of on the way to there and then stalled him long enough for a young girl to die. Not super considerate. But then there's this week. This week, we've got this house that's packed full of people, so packed that nobody else can fit in the house, not even around the door area where it starts to open up. And as people have packed in here, it's first century, Jesus doesn't have a microphone, so people have to be quiet so that they can hear what he's saying. And as they're listening to, to the wisdom that's coming out of his mouth, there's, there starts to be this scraping sound coming from the roof. And then, then a thudding, and people are looking at each other like, what's going on? Like, doesn't seem like the right time for a construction project. And then it turns into a pounding and dust starts to trickle down from the ceiling and people start to, to look up as chunks fall down and people are ducking and covering, but they can't move anywhere because the house is too packed. And then the chunks turn into bigger chunks and, and the hole opens up and they can see the sky through it. And the owner of the house is ranting and raving because what the heck is happening to his roof? And then these bigger chunks fall and the hole gets bigger and bigger until it's the size of like a twin mattress or something. And people are coughing and hacking because there's so much dust and debris in this confined little space. And they look up and illuminated in this new shaft of light that is coming down through the broken roof, there's a bed. And it's got a rope in each of the corners and is slowly coming down from on high onto the crowd. And the crowd has to compress to get out of the way or else they just got a crowd surfing like President Gash. But they probably shouldn't do that. So they do manage to get out of the way of this bed and he lands down at the feet of Jesus. And there's kind of a, an awkward moment, right? And four little heads poke out from the, from the roof. Like, what's going on down there? Let's talk about those guys for a second, because I think they're, they're pretty noteworthy. Like, I'm not one to, to condone or encourage destruction of property or, or, you know, public menacing or vandalism or anything like that. But talk about a group of guys who are willing to do anything for each other, right? I, we don't know much about this paralyzed guy. We don't know if he was born paralyzed or if he was recently paralyzed. We do know he somehow got hooked up with like the coolest group of friends ever. We don't know much about them. We don't know what they did, but we do know they were willing to drop whatever they were doing when Jesus showed up and seize the opportunity to get their buddy in front of Jesus. And we don't know whose idea it was for them to go up on the roof when they couldn't fit him in the door but we know it probably was the guy who got them in a whole lot of trouble as kids, right? Regardless, it seems like they have a shared faith. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he healed their, he forgave their paralyzed friend. They knew their buddy's need, and they did what they had to do to get him in front of Jesus. And after wrestling this bed up onto the roof, trying not to jostle him too much, and taking this risk by, by hacking a huge hole in some random house, and then lowering him down precariously through this hole, imagine the, these four or five guys' disappointment 
when they heard the words come up from below, son, your sins are forgiven. Because that's not really what they were there for, right? They didn't have a plan. They just lowered this guy's bed down through a hole. It's a lot easier to go down through the hole than to pull him back up. They're kind of counting on him walking out of there, right? Sure, it's nice that his sins are forgiven, but Jesus has been making a, a reputation for himself as a healer and doing all these miraculous healings throughout the land of Israel at this point. So, so while it's nice that his sins are forgiven, that's not really why they're there. But then he keeps talking. And Jesus explains in this moment that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say get up and walk. And of course it is, right? But literally anyone can say your sins are forgiven. Unless you're God, you have no way to prove that that didn't happen, right? There's no way to tell if someone's sins really were forgiven. If you do say get up and walk to a paralyzed person, it gets really easy to tell if you're full of it, right? If they get up and walk, great. If they don't, you're full of it. But Jesus then follows that up by doing exactly that. And he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he does. Now, keep in mind, like we talked about last week, this is a culture that equates physical imperfection with impurity, with unholiness. This is a culture that, that sees your, your physical condition is very closely tied to your righteousness. So no one believed Jesus when he said, your sins are forgiven without healing this guy. In fact, it fed right into these teachers of the law's um, or their idea that Jesus was blaspheming. It fed right into the idea that Jesus was just a liar because only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus was God, the sins would be forgiven and the body would be made whole. But that's not what happened, so he must not be. And then Jesus, knowing that they're thinking this, steps up to the plate in a big way and proves very clearly that he is who he says he is and that he can do, he has the authority to do what he says he came to do. And what Jesus just did here is worth taking a closer look at too because Jesus opened with his big move. He opened with the best card that he had. He gave the best gift first but it's not the one that the people wanted. Jesus gave the forgiveness. He healed in two ways that day, right? He healed this person spiritually as well as physically. And he gave the, the gift that cost the most first. I don't want to spoil it for anyone in case you're unfamiliar with the story, but later on in the book, Jesus goes ahead and actually dies in order to pay the price for that forgiveness of sins. My senior year at Pepperdine, I've shared a little bit of my story here, but um, my senior year at Pepperdine, I became spiritually stagnant. I became spiritually paralyzed. I started living a life that reflected that my priorities were the next party over treating people well. That my priorities were feeling good in the moment over glorifying God with what I said, with what I did with my body. And I didn't see this as a problem. I didn't notice this rough patch in my life. I always felt like 
I was a good person, regardless of the decisions that I was making. And it took a really tough conversation with a really good friend in order to bring it to my attention. It was one night, we were actually just, just here in the what used to be the study rooms below Payson, studying late at night for a neuroscience exam we had coming up. We were both sports med majors. Keep in mind, this is one of my best friends, a person who I respected and still respect as a man who loves God more than anyone or anything, who owns it when he screws up and encourages the people he loves to do the same thing. And we're sitting there, we're talking about neuroscience, and he just kind of cuts me off at one point. He's like, tell her, I've got to talk to you about something. And he goes on to really call me out on how I'm living my life. And he doesn't do it in a mean way. He doesn't do it in, in a judgmental way. He doesn't do it in a condescending way, but he does do it very directly. He says, tell her, you need to grow up, you need to make better decisions, and you need to come back to Jesus. And in that moment, it didn't really feel very good, believe it or not. And it might not seem like this moment that we had has anything to do with this story, but, but what happened was a good friend, someone who loved me and cared about my physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, did something really hard for me in that moment. Brian is one of the least confrontational person, people you would ever meet. Okay, I can't imagine what went through his mind in the moments leading up as he just tried to tried to say this to me. But this was him wrestling my bed up onto the roof because I couldn't help myself. I couldn't even see it in myself that I needed help. This was him hacking a hole in the roof, being totally disruptive, disrupting my life. And frankly, in the moment, kind of just ticking me off. But this was a point where we shared a faith, but he for sure had the lion's share of it in that chapter. And he loved me enough to speak hard truth to me, to get real with me, and to pray for me as he pointed me toward the feet of Jesus. And I'm so glad that he did, because I can just picture looking up and seeing his little head poking out over, over the roof hole that he just shoved me down as I look up from the feet of Jesus and see him there. The story that we read demonstrates, in it, Jesus demonstrates the power of his love, the power of his forgiveness to heal. But that paralyzed man didn't get there on his own. If he'd been on his own, he would have laid exactly where he started. Jesus would have come to town, done his thing, left town, and that paralyzed man would have continued to lay exactly where he was. It was only because of the faith of his closest community and the people he surrounded with himself with that he came to the feet of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about, because he's not the only one, right? We're all in that position. We all have friends in that position, and our communities are all made up of people in that position. This week, in our life groups, we're talking about this, right? We're, we're going to talk about what are the things that, that paralyze us? What are the things that keep us from feeling the forgiveness and love and transformation of Jesus? What are the barriers that stand between us and Jesus? And do our friends, 
Do our mentors, do our closest community members know about those things? And do we know about those things in the lives of the people around us and in our closest friends? Because I think we should. Because trying to keep it all together all the time just leads to more anxiety. The anxiety that comes from putting the pressure on ourselves to continue to perform at a peak level. We see in this story that sometimes it takes more than just you to be healed of the things paralyzing you. Sometimes it takes us lovingly doing really hard things for each other to carry each other, to push each other, and to support each other. My challenge and my hope for you this week is that you install some skylights. That you hack away and that you batter away and you, you dig holes in the barriers that keep you from Jesus. And that you do it alongside a community of people who you've allowed to see your paralysis, to see the things that are keeping you there. And that you do the same for each other. It'll take some effort. It's really hard to remove that mask that's so comfortable to wear, that's so easy to wear, and just be fine. So my prayer for tonight is that we lean into the discomfort of revealing our paralysis to each other. That we'd be willing to confront our most trusted relationships with areas where we're separate from Jesus, where we're being disrespectful or inconsiderate of his beloved people, of his creation. And I pray that we'll be lovingly disruptive enough to lower each other through the roof to the feet of Jesus and walk together on this path toward healing. Would you bow and pray with me?